Alternative Radio. Hello there, folks, and thank you for listening to the show. I'm Joanna. I'm Nate, and this is Stranger Than. As usual, we're going to tell you about some things. Uh, we'll start out with me telling you about some things, and then Joanna will tell you about some things, and we'll follow up with me telling you about some more things. All of my things are kind of... It's, they got a theme. It's a thing theme. I got a, I got a thing theme. Okay, and what's your thing theme? It's, 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 uh, they're about Merlin and Excalibur, so we're going uh, you know, a little King Arthur here today. You've been on a big King Arthur kick lately lately i was listening to these books uh they were bad books i read them when i was a kid and they were good when i was a kid but they weren't i was just a kid and dumb and so i listened to them and i'm not going to keep listening i finished three and there's five and i'm not going to carry on because it's just it's just bad they're also written in first person which i'm not the biggest fan of mm -hmm. because i just think it's kind of lazy it's, uh, I don't know, which is unfortunate because a lot of the classics are also written in, in first person, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is what I'm listening to now is all in first person. And it's like kind of annoying. It's also super gay. <laughs> I swear to God. Like, but... There is some serious latent homosexuality in those book in that book. Really? Oh, well, that yeah, doesn't surprise like, me. That doesn't surprise me. Not at all. Uh... I believe Jules Verne is thought to have been bisexual. Okay. I was going to say The Handmaid's Tale is also written uh, mostly in the first person. Yeah, I just... Uh, it's it's very hands, Handmaid's Tale lately. Like, the, the political is. climate is... It is very... Uh, very Gileadish. Yeah, not good. It's not good. It's, it's not good. It's not good at all. But, why don't we take your minds off of it? Right. Uh, I'll start out today. This was an article written September 2nd, 2021, or at least published. Bristol manuscript fragments of the famous Merlin legend among the oldest of their kind. And this is on fizz.org. I love Merlin. Yeah. Me too. Big fan. Did you watch The Sword in the Stone when you were little? The cartoon? Yeah, the Disney movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I watched, yeah. I, I watched that. A few months ago, actually. Right. I watch it with a relative frequency. I like it. It's pretty good. I like the Owl Archimedes. Mm-hmm. It's a good old, good old feathery friend to uh, old Wart there. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um, I love that movie. That's a good one. Have you ever watched the the Merlin series? Like not not the newer one, but the the Sam Neill one. Like the yes, I believe that was actually that was like a TV movie thing. Yeah. I don't think it was really a like a. I think it was a well, mini it was a series. mini series. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I have seen that. Sam Neill as Merlin is pretty badass. Mm -hmm. I have seen the new like BBC Merlin, which is is it good? It's okay. I mean, it's not at all the same. It's definitely made for teenagers. Okay. But it's okay. I mean, it would be, it might be something that your kids would like. I don't know. Right. I watched, I mean, I watched the whole thing. John Hurt is the voice of the dragon, which is cool. Yeah, that's cool. I don't know if you know, if you remember who John Hurt is, was, he's dead now. But he's the dude in Alien who gets the, the chest burster pops out of his chest. Okay, yeah. And then he's in, I mean, that's, he's been in fucking tons of shit. He was in Doctor Who. He was in everything. 
Medieval manuscript fragments discovered in Bristol that tell part of the story of Merlin the Magician, one of the most famous characters from the Arthurian legend, have been identified by academics from the University of Bristol and Durham as some of the earliest surviving examples of that section of the narrative. The analysis also uncovered how the handwritten documents ended up in Bristol, differences in the text from previous versions of the story, and by using multispectral imaging technology, the researchers were able to read damaged sections of the text unseen by the naked eye, and could even identify the type of ink that was used. The seven parchment fragments were spotted by chance in early 2019 by Michael Richardson from the University of Bristol's Special Collections Library. They were pasted into the bindings of four early modern vo volumes published between 1494 and 1502 and held in Bristol's Central Library's Rare Books collection. The fragments contain a passage from the old French sequence of texts known as the Vulgate Cycle or Lancelot Grail Cycle. It's probably Vulgate, really, because it's French, right? Right. Yeah. French. Or Lancelot Grail Cycle, which dates to the early 13th century. Parts of this cycle may have been used by Sir Thomas Mallory, 1415-1471, as a source for his Le Morte d'Arthur, first printed in 1485 by William Caxton, which is itself the main source text for many modern retellings of the Arthurian legend in English. The find attracted significant media attention with the Bristol Merlin, as it became quickly known, making headlines across the world. After the discovery, Professor Lee Tether, president of the International Authorian Society, British branch, from Bristol's Department of English, her husband, medieval historian and manuscript specialist Dr. Benjamin Paul from the university's Department of History, and Dr. Laura Chuhan Campbell, a specialist in the old French Merlin stories from Durham University, set out to examine and analyze the fragments in detail to discover more about them. Their collaborative research and findings, which include a full transcription and translation into English of the text, have been brought together in a new book called The Bristol Merlin, revealing the secrets of a medieval fragment recently published by Arc Humanities Press with full-page color images of the fragments captured by the award-winning Bristol-based photographer Don Hooper. He's my favorite Bristol-based photographer. Mine too. Good, good. Good old Don. <laughs> Professor Tether said, We were able to date the manuscript from which the fragments were taken to 1250 to 1275 through a paleographic handwriting analysis and located it to northern, possibly northeastern France through a linguistic study. The text itself, the Suite Vulgate du Merlin, was written in about 1220 to 1225, so this puts the Bristol manuscript within a generation of the narrative's original authorship. We were also able to place a manuscript in England as early as 1300 to 1350, thanks to an annotation in a margin. Again, we were able to date the handwriting and identify it as an English hand. Most manuscripts of the text known to have been in England in the Middle Ages were composed after 1275, so this is an especially early example, both of sweet Vulgate manuscripts in general anywhere, but especially of ones known to have found their way to England from France in the Middle Ages. Working with Professor Andy Beebe of Durham's University's Department of Chemistry was also a game changer for our project, thanks to the mobile ramen, not ramen like the noodles, <laughs> ramen spectrometer developed by him and his team, Team Pigment, especially for manuscript study. We captured images of damaged sections and through digital processing could read some parts of the text more clearly. 
This process also helped us to establish, since the text appeared dark under infrared light, that the two scribes had in fact used a carbon-based ink made from soot and called lamp black, rather than the, than the com more common iron gall ink made from gall nuts, which would appear light under infrared illumination. The reason for the scribes' ink choice may have to do with the particularly ink-making materials that were available near their workshop. In addition to uncovering detail on the age of the manuscript, the team was also able to piece together how the fragments ended up in the books, and how the books themselves found their way to Bristol. Based on the bindings of the books in which the fragments are now found as paste-downs, a four-volume copy of the works of the French philosopher Jean Gerson, printed 1494-1502, the team was able to deduce that the, that the fragments and the manuscript from which they came had become waste in either Oxford or Cambridge, and were then recycled for their parchment rather than their content. As binding materials in the books which we now find them, this probably happened prior to 1520. The reason for the manuscript becoming waste is unknown, but may have to do with newer English versions of the Arthurian legend becoming available in the new medium of print, like Mallory's La Mort d'Arthur. Based on the known provenance of other books in the Bristol collection, and likely the likely route to Bristol for the books was via Tobias Matthew, Archbishop of York from 1602 to 1628. Prior to that role, Matthew had been the dean and bishop of Durham, and collected many books formerly belonging to the monks, a lot of which had bindings from Oxford in particular, because many of the Durham monks studied at Durham College, Oxford, now Trinity College. Matthew, who was born in Bristol, would later, in 1613, co-found the Bristol Public Library, and he donated a large number of books to the library's foundation, some of which arrived posthumously. The books containing the Merlin fragments were very likely among his bequest. In addition, the team found that the Bristol fragments contained evidence of subtle but significant differences from the narrative of the stories found in modern editions. There were longer, more detailed descriptions of the actions of various characters in certain sections, particularly in relation to battle action. One example of this is where Merlin gives instructions for those who will lead each of the four divisions of Arthur's forces. The characters responsible for each division are different from the better-known version of the narrative. Sometime, only small details were changed. For example, King Claudius is wounded through the thighs in the version found in modern editions, wherein the fragments of the nature of the wound is left unsaid, which may lead to different interpretations of the text owing to thigh wounds often being used as metaphors for impotence or castration. Another example is a slightly toned-down account, compared to other versions, of Merlin's sexual encounter with the enchantress Vivienne, better known to Mallory readers as the Lady of the Lake. The seven leaves themselves represent a continuous sequence of the Bogate Merlin narrative, though they were bound out of chronological order, specifically a passage from the section known as the Suite Vulgate du Merlin, Vulgate continuation of Merlin. Events begin with Arthur, Merlin, Gawain, and assorted other knights, including King Ban and King Bors, preparing for battle at Trebes against King Claudius and his followers. Merlin has been strategizing the best plan of attack. There follows a long description of the battle. At one point, Arthur's forces look beleaguered, but a speech from Merlin urging them to avoid cowardice leads them to the fight again, and Merlin leads the charge using Sir Kay's special dragon standard that Merlin had gifted to Arthur, which breathes real fire. In the end, Arthur's forces are triumphant. King Arthur, Ban, and Bors, and the other knights are accommodated in the castle of Treves. That night, Ban and his wife, Queen Elaine, conceive a child. Elaine then has a strange dream about a lion and a leopard, the latter of which seems to prefigure Elaine's yet-to-be-born son. 
Ban also has a terrifying dream in which he hears a voice. He wakes up and goes to church. We are told that Arthur's stay in the kingdom of Benwick for the next month. Ban and Bors are able to continue to fight and defeat Claudius, but Arthur leaves to look after matters in his own lands. Claudius is once again triumphant. Son of a bitch. The narrative then moves to Merlin's partial explanation of the dreams of Ban and Elaine. Afterwards, Merlin meets Vivian, who wishes to know how to put people to sleep. She wishes to do this for her parents. Merlin stays with Vivian for a week, apparently falling in love with her, but resists sleeping with her. Merlin then returns to Benwick to rejoin Arthur and his companions. Professor Tether added, Besides the exciting conclusions, one thing that undertake this study, edition, and translation of the Bristol Merlin has revealed is the immeasurable value of interdisciplinary and trans-institutional collaboration, which in our case has forged a holistic, comprehensive model for studying medieval manuscript fragments that we hope will inform and encourage future work in the field. It has also shown us the great potential of local manuscript and rare book collections in Bristol, particularly in the Central Library, where there are many more unidentified manuscript fragments awaiting discovery. So that's cool. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's just kind of the same old story, but it's kind of neat that they have extra bits to it and, and parts that are, you know, weren't quite yet fleshed out, like the, what, the wound and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by the King Arthur and... Excalibur and Merlin and Guinevere and yeah, it's uh, it's all very uh, it's very interesting things. Mm -hmm. uh, I am also fascinated by it. Uh, so I'm going to read another quick one, and then we'll go on to your thing, and then we'll end up with my thing. Okay, sounds good. Facets of faith in Wales, churches can have spiritual, historical, or pop culture notice. This was written April 14th, 2022, and is from theadvocate.com. On a recent trip to Wales, as always, churches caught my eye. The first thing I noticed was how many old churches have been converted into stores and other spaces. Even from the train, I could see the names on the buildings indicating the former sacred spaces were no longer used that way. Even buildings still considered sacred spaces have historical significance as well as pop culture connections. One of my time was spent in this small city of Carmarthen, one of the oldest towns in Wales. Carmarthen was settled as a Roman fort by 1110. An abbey and monastic house were established in the area. St. Peter's Church is a surviving church associated with that priory. One piece of the history is the tomb of Sir Rees Ap Thomas, the knight who supposedly killed King Richard III, leading to Henry Tudor taking the throne as King Henry VII. Rees Ap Thomas was knighted for his service. He died in 1525, and his tome has been moved several times. It has resided in the current locations uh, inside St. Peter's since 1886. The church, the church also houses an ancient Roman altar. Because of St. Peter's connection to the priory, it also is considered home of the Black Book of Carmarthen. The book is considered the oldest existing manuscript completely in Welsh. It dates to 1250 and was copied by someone in the Priory. It contains several stories, including some early parts of Arthurian legend. It is housed in the National Library of Wales. Arthur's Magician Carmarthen is known as the birthplace of Merlin from the legends of King Arthur. The town's Welsh name, Carfirthen, can mean Merlin's fort. A statue in town pays homage to the wise man Merlin, who is seen as a magician in many of the stories. His character draws from ancient Celtic mythology, 
old Christianity, and more. Sometimes he was considered demonic. The statue has many symbols, including a Welsh dragon, other animals, plants, and a labyrinth. Cardiff Church History In Cardiff, the capital of Wales, the castle is perhaps the best-known building. But blocks away is a building known to many fans of science fiction show Doctor Who. The interior of St. John the Baptist Church was used in the wedding scenes in the Runaway Bride episode from Christmas 2006. The city on Cardiff Bay is the Norwegian Church Arts Center, established as a Lutheran church in 1868. It was a place for Scandinavian sailors and residents of Norwegian descent to worship. The building was deconsecrated in 1974 and in the 1980s and 90s dismantled and rebuilt in its current location. The building was saved in part of the efforts of author Roe Dahl, who wrote childhood favorites James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Matilda, as well as short stories for adults. Dahl was born in Cardiff to Norwegian parents. He was baptized in the church. The building, which plans to reopen from COVID-19 closure later this month, is an art and center cafe and holds celebrations of Dahl. I love Roald Dahl. Yeah, I mean, that had everything. It had Roald Dahl, Doctor Who, and Merlin. <laughs> How about you tell us what you got for us, Joanna? All right. I have a story about a maniacal letter writer. A maniacal letter writer. Right. Now, um, in unsolved lore it's no uh this whoever this person is is known as the uh circleville letter writer the circleville letter writer yeah not a not a wholly menacing uh nickname but um nonetheless this person uh has caused quite a bit of grief in a lot of people's lives so they are a little menacing this yes letter writer Yes, that's why I use the term maniacal. Yes, maniacal indeed. I just like to incorporate that term into things every now and like again. You like to say maniacal I like to say can. maniacal whenever that's I cool. can. That's cool. Well, Circleville. Circleville is a small town in Ohio. Ohio. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of place where people tend to leave just kind of uh, quiet lives. And that all changed in the 70s, starting in 1976, when residents of the town began to receive anonymous letters in the mail. Most of these letters contained um, threats of exposure of secrets. Um, yeah, it was just... Like blackmail type shit. Yeah, like kind of, like kind of like blackmail type shit, except not really like demanding anything other oh. than, you know, them to, you know, stop what they're doing or I know what you did. I'm watching you. Right. <laughs> you better do this or else. Uh, the excerpt from one letter uh, to a resident says, "You have been watched. Failure to comply, and you shall suffer. No one can help. No one can protect you. Obey, obey." Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's craziness. So what are the I mean So a lot of residents received letters, but there was uh, a particular woman who was uh harassed uh by by the letter writer and so the most of the stuff that you find on the Circleville letter writer uh kind of centers around 
her and her family's story of okay, the experience. Good. And real quick, my sources are www.cbsnews.com, thelineup.com, www.historicmysteries.com, thoughtcatalog.com, and also Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, yeah. And courtesy of cbsnews.com, uh, an episode of 48 Hours. Oh. Well, in March of 1977 is the first time that um, Mary Gillespie, that was the person most targeted by the Circleville letter writer, first began receive, receiving letters. The letters uh, accused her of having an affair with the married school superintendent, Gordon Massey. Now, Mary was also married and had two children. Oh. The writer That's not of the generally yeah. like a great great situation to be in if you're dating somebody else. Right, right. <laughs> and she was a she was a bus driver for the school district. And so bus driver and the, you know, allegedly, supposedly she you know, she the school bus driver was having an affair with the superintendent. Hey, why not? I mean <laughs> And the letter was very threatening, saying, like, I know you have children, you need to stop this affair immediately. And she kind of just crumpled it up and and threw it out because she was like, okay, whatever. Well, letters continued. She began receiving them almost daily. One of them reads, Lady, this is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig wow. sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs, causes families and homes and marriages to suffer. Jesus. <laughs> well, not... Yeah. <laughs> Making their point pretty clear. Yeah. Well, not too much... Later, after that last letter, her husband begins receiving letters of his own because apparently, like, the author was like, all right, you haven't, you know, no nothing has changed, at least in their eyes. So uh, the writer began to write to Mary's husband. And he said, you know, like, she's having this affair with Gordon Massey. Uh, your wife is in danger if she doesn't stop this extramarital affair. He also suggested that he follow them and catch them in the act. And, uh, well, quote, you should catch them together and kill them both. End quote. Wow. Is what the letter said. Catch them together and kill them both. That's, mm -hmm. that's very, uh, that's yowza. Now, Mary, when her husband confronted her, said, yeah, I've been getting these letters uh, for weeks, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to upset you. And it's not true. She uh, vehemently denied having an affair. Even though she was. Well, it comes out later that, yes, she was. But allegedly it didn't start until after the letter started. So <laughs> pre-letter. She was like, you know, that guy does look pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we may as well at this point. I mean, if everyone thinks it already, I may as well be like getting the benefits. Yes, but at the time, she denied that she was ha that any such fair affair was going on, and that you know, for just some unknown reason, like this unknown person was 
just fucking harassing the shit out of her. After, again, nothing, you know, doing nothing, her husband's just kind of like, okay, well, you know, this is creepy and weird, but whatever. He receives another letter. Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Wow, he's really w- w- willing to put forth a lot of time and money. Yeah. And CBs. And... I mean, were CBs like huge <laughs> in the 70s or something? I guess so. That, I mean, that was, I mean, was that like old school podcasting? Was you just p- open up the, like turn on the CB and listen? Right. <laughs> Anyone out there? Anyone out there? Mary Gillespie is having an affair with the school <laughs> superintendent, Gordon Massey. Gordon Massey is an adulterer. Mary Gillespie is too. Her her husband, Ron Gillespie, is doing nothing about it. <laughs> Just repeats message over again. Be like, yes. man, this is a shitty stage channel. <laughs> Well, Mary did have an idea of who might be sending these harassing letters. And that was a, another bus driver named David Longberry. A Longberry? Longberry. He had put the moves on her and she had rejected him. It's because she's married, right? Right. She's married. Yeah. And yeah. so she rejected him. And so she thought maybe he was the one behind the letters. So Ron and Mary get together with Ron's sister, Karen Sue, and Ron's and her husband, her uh, Mary's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour, and together they'll, you know, they kind of hatch a plan on how they're going to like end this whole deal. So they write to this guy, David and say, like, hey, we know that you're the one writing the letters, and you better fucking stop it. And they think that they were successful because for a few weeks, the letters did stop. But then they started right back up again, and the letter writer kind of followed through with their threats. He started, like, posting signs all over town about it, like, writing <laughs> to, like, the newspapers, writing to just anyone that would listen. People were getting letters about this affair, and, Just, you like, know, writing notes and putting them in mail envelopes and walking and just putting them in people's mailboxes down yeah, the street. Yeah, yeah. Getting the word out to the community. Uh-huh. Fuck. Yeah, the, the public needed to know. Yeah, I guess so, for a good <laughs> Clearly. time call. Clearly. Well, Mary, feeling the intense stress of the situation, was deci- decided that she was going to go to Florida for uh, a vacation. And I can't see this turning out well. <laughs> and right after she left, she was still on her way to Florida when her husband, Ron, receives a phone call at their home. And the children were home with Ron, and he tells them that it was the person who's been writing the letters and that he's going to confront them. He grabs his twenty-two caliber pistol, gets in his truck, and drives away. And just, you know, maybe like a mile down the street, ends up 
running and losing control of the car, running into a tree and dying in this car crash. Wow. Yes. The fuck? Now, the weird part is, is that, number one, his blood alcohol level was almost double the legal limit, and he was not known to be a drinker. Right. And so, although he could, I mean, maybe, you know, his wife's going off to Florida, they're under extreme stress, maybe he's just home and just drinking more than he usually does when he gets the call from whoever this person is, and it just sets him off and he's like, I'm going to go fucking get this guy. And then he ends up crashing into a tree and dying. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. But the weird thing is, is that one shot had been fired from his pistol prior to the car crashing. Interesting. Yes, and the police were unable to determine where that, where or when that shot was fired. So he could have just had one bullet missing from his gun? It could have been, but I think it, it showed that the gun had been fired recently. Oh, okay, so like it, whatever, whatever it happens when you fire a gun, it smells like gunpowder, it's got like the residue or whatever. Yeah, yeah, there, you can tell if a gun has been fired recently. There's tests that they can do. Yeah. So, yeah. um. Yeah, the gun had been fired recently, but there wasn't anything like recovered at the scene that would indicate that, you know, yeah, it was just a big mystery. Yeah. Now, the sheriff of the town, one Dwight Rad- Radcliffe, eventually ruled it as a, just an accident, just a fatal car crash. But the brother-in-law, Paul Freshhauer, felt that foul play was involved and yeah, he didn't think that was just some car crash he was like nah someone did something right and then letters from the circleville letter writer would soon uh surface accusing sheriff radcliffe of uh covering up of doing a cover-up on the accident huh. yeah now after the accident that is the point when mary comes clean and says she was, in fact, having an affair with Gordon Massey. So after her husband's dead. Yeah. At that point, she admits to the affair, but that the affair only started after the letters. Started, yeah. Yeah. Gave her the uh, idea. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, yeah, that's a good idea. Gonna go for it. And I mean, just think about how much power this person has already had. I mean... This person harasses these these people, uh, gets her to finally, like, admit to the affair, only after pretty much causing her husband to have a fatal car crash because he uh, he or she provoked him in some way. Yeah. That he went off all, like, half-cocked and intoxicated. (laughs) Maybe he was fully cocked and drunk. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know how much cock he had. (laughs) And yeah, so pretty, pretty crazy stuff as it is. And then maybe, maybe once Mary just finally came clean and was like, okay, I was having an affair with the superintendent, it would stop. But like that did not satisfy the letter writer. It made him, him or her even more uh, determined to like ruin her life. And like, yeah, fucking hate you so much. uh Yeah. The threats just totally escalated from that point on. Started like mentioning like her children more and more, 
And on February 7th, 1983, she was driving her empty school bus. So she was driving um, from the school to like start the route or for whatever reason, like the kids weren't in the bus yet. And she's driving down this road. And then she sees this obscene sign about her 13-year-old daughter, Tracy, along the side of the road. She's <laughs> like, the fuck? Uh-huh. And so she pulls over to remove the sign. And as she's starting to pull the sign away, she notices like a weird box with a string attached to it behind, attached to the sign. So she kind of removes the box as well and then takes it back onto the bus to investigate it. Well, when she gets the box open, there is a gun with the string kind of rigged to where if she had yanked the sign off, it would have like squeezed the trigger. Oh, Jesus. And, you know, possibly so, yeah, wow. could have killed her, would have, would have shot her. The gun was like loaded, ready to go. Like booby so it trap. Was, it was a booby trap. That's exactly what it was. It was a booby trap for her specifically. Yeah. She's lucky she wasn't that big of a booby, I guess. Yeah. Well, she turned that over to the sheriff and. The gun had, someone had tried to file the serial number off the gun to, so that, that it can be identified. But they were able to recover it, and it belonged to a local man who told the police that he had sold that gun to none other than Paul Freshour. <laughs> <laughs> Which is her brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. So the sheriff goes to question Paul about the gun and he openly admits like, yeah, that's my gun, but it has been missing for weeks. <laughs> the sheriff is not quite buying it. So he tells Paul he needs to submit uh, handwriting samples. <laughs> and the way he does it is he has Paul like copy from letters that are already in the in police custody, ones that like Mary and Ron have turned in as well as other residents. And then one's even written to the police themselves because this guy just wrote to fucking everybody in town, apparently. Got nothing better to do, I guess. I guess not. Well, Sheriff Radcliffe feels that the handwriting is similar enough. And because of the fact that, uh, Paul admitted to owning the gun. Uh, Paul is arrested for attempted murder of his sister-in-law. Now, during this time, Paul and his wife, Karen Sue, were going through an extremely bitter divorce. So when the police had talked to Karen about it, she had said that she suspected that Paul was the letter writer. That she had found oh, letters in the house. One was like torn up and in the bath and in the toilet, like in an attempt to like, you know, hide it. And that the other letters uh, that looked like the Circleville letters uh, MO were hidden throughout her house. She never actually produced any of these letters that she found. She said she had gotten rid of them, but. Allegedly, supposedly has letters. Mm hmm. Exactly. It was enough to where they're just like, oh, well, we've got our guy. They yeah. <laughs> they put Paul give a shit on about trial. Getting somebody. <laughs> yeah, they put Paul on trial. And he did not testify in his own defense. 
even though he had an alibi for the day that the uh, sign was was rigged, um, he he had taken off work, so they really kind of centered on the fact that he wasn't, you know, he he would have had time to do this, even though he was busy doing other things. He didn't testify in his own defense, so the jury didn't really get to to hear that part of it. And then, of course, there was two uh, handwriting experts that said that based off of um, the handwriting samples that Paul had submitted, he was uh, probably definitely the Circleville letter writer. Ah, so he yeah. was found guilty and sentenced to sent to seven to twenty five years in prison. Well, once he's in prison, everyone's like, "Okay, well now, now it's all going to stop, right?" But it didn't. The letters continued. So many letters. It's ridiculous. Hundreds of letters. And the weird thing is, is that uh, the sheriff was getting more and more frustrated with all these letters. Uh, You know, that everyone kept getting fucking threatening letters and the newspapers and whatever. Just all the places that the Circleville letter writer liked to like to submit letters to. He was having like the, the, the prison guards and stuff basically put him in, in solitary confinement because he was still somehow convinced that, that Paul was behind it. Even though the, um, I think like the superintendent of the prison even wrote a letter to the to the parole board or something like that, saying like I'm pretty sure that it's not him because all of his mail is checked. He doesn't even have access to writing materials mo- most of the time in his oh, cell. Right. Uh, the prison itself was in Lima, Ohio, but all of the. Uh, letters previous to him getting convicted and all of the letters while he was incarcerated were all done through uh, Columbus, Ohio, through the the postal station in Columbus, Ohio. Right. So there, like, even if he had managed to write something from prison, it would have been postmarked through Lima and not through Columbus because he was far away from it at the time. Yeah, yeah. So it would have had to been something where maybe he wrote them all ahead of time before he was incarcerated and then had somebody sending them out for him. Just in case, you know, hey, yeah. if you send them out, maybe maybe they can get off of this. <laughs> yeah. And he was actually denied parole, I think, at least two times over really? the letter-writing incidents that... Everyone was like, "How could it possibly be him?" But they're just like, mm, "I don't know. Like, this just doesn't." Fuck this guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, eventually, Christ. eventually, uh, Paul did get out of prison, but he he served ten years in prison. Wow. Mm-hmm. And shortly after he got out of prison is when the letters stopped. But it went on for like decades. That these is letters, super strange, and they still no. I mean, they're like we don't know. Right, right. Now, since that time, there's been a lot of attempts made to find out like who you know the identity of who the the letter writer could have been. Right, because it was posited at a time. It was like, well, maybe, maybe it was. Um, 
his ex-wife, Karen Sue. Maybe she's the one who did it. Maybe uh, she stole his gun and set him up because after the divorce, she had lost custody of her kids. She had lost her house. She was actually living in a trailer on Mary Gillespie's property. So once Paul... So she had reason? She had reason. It was a very bitter divorce. And once Paul went away to prison, then she actually got everything. She benefited from him being in prison. She, however, had a full-time job, and it's it's hard to imagine her writing so many letters um, while working a full-time yeah. job. And it just, I mean, not, not everything quite added up to where she was a, a definite suspect. Some even suspected their son who would who actually like killed himself in oh, 2002 Jesus. he shot himself in the head but um i think it was karen said that he had been suffering from depression uh paul before going into before the all the before the arrest had happened had told a friend that his gun was missing and that he suspected it might have been his son who had taken the gun but he never revealed that to the police and the son never visited him while he was in prison. But the divorce was so bitter. It seemed that the mom was kind of, Karen was kind of like, no, you choose me. You have to pick a parent. Yeah. Yeah. So either you're on my side or you're on your dad's side. So I think, um, the poor kid was just messed up and that just, uh, uh, continued with him into adulthood and he yeah. just couldn't he just couldn't deal couldn't yeah i i wouldn't suspect that it was that it was him some suspected the son of the the superintendent as being <laughs> yeah as being the possible the letter writer letter writer yeah and it wasn't just um it wasn't just Mary Gillespie who had had stuff outed. Um, Roger Klein, who was the prosecutor for um, Paul Freshour, he had received uh, a letter accusing him of killing a pregnant woman. Well, later it would come to light that a Pregnant woman died in an accident, and the autopsy revealed that the unborn child was, in fact, Roger Klein's child. All right, then. Also, Dr. Ray Carroll, the person who had done Ron Gillespie's autopsy, the Circleville writer outed him as a pedophile, and he was actually charged in 1993 uh, with 12 counts of gross immortality, sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure. Oh, wow. So, what was the first one? Immorality? Huh? The first one was immorality? Yeah, gross immorality. Gross immorality. Mm-hmm. Jesus. In 1994, after Paul had been paroled, Unsolved Mysteries decided to do a segment on the Circleville Letter Writer. <laughs> I watched it. You know, it's old school, Unsolved Mysteries. Good old Robert, Robert Stack. Stack. And the Circleville Letter Writer 
wrote to Unsolved Mysteries before they even came to film. Really? It sent, yeah, they sent a letter to the uh, Unsolved Mysteries, you know, studio folk. That's great. It's like, hey, I <laughs> yeah. think that might be a really good addition to your show. Actually, it said, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay the Circleville writer. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty scary. Yes. Well, that didn't stop Unsolved Mystery from going to Circleville and investigating the case, but they were unable to find the true identity of the letter writer. Yeah. Now, 48 Hours investigated this, and they did a program on it just uh, last year where... They brought in, like, an FBI profiler and another document expert, both to try and determine whether or not it was actually Paul Freshour or somebody else. The FBI profiler was Mary Ellen O'Toole, and from what she could tell, it was a, it was a singular person. It, was, it had been posited that, well, maybe... There's more than one letter writer. Maybe this is multiple people because this person like knows so much about everyone's business, knew about the uh, affair between Mary Gillespie and the superintendent, uh, knows about Ron Klein, uh, sorry, Roger Klein's affair and, uh, you know, pregnancy that resulted from that affair and then knew about the freaking medical examiner's uh penchant for you know pedophilia and stuff (laughs) it's like who knows these things i know right Maybe it was multiple people airing using the opportunity to air their grievances however since no one has ever been identified mary ellen o'toole felt that it was a sing it's the the letter writer has just been one person this whole time because she says, when you, uh, quote, when you have one person and one person only, that person can take the secret to the grave, end quote. So the fewer people doing the letter writer, the more uh, easy it is to keep it secret yeah, for I mean, forever, apparently. Yeah. The less so it makes people sense you tell that about it would just stuff, be one person. Yeah, I mean, the less people you tell about stuff, I mean... The less chance it's gonna it's gonna get out there, right? She also went on to think that it could possibly have been a woman who wrote it, and that this person was not a very highly educated person, and most likely had some kind of personality disorder where they knew they were committing wrong, but just chose to do the wrong. And was really like a, a cruel, like kind of bullyish type of person. Someone who enjoyed being a fucking asshole, basically. Right, right. Just, just a fucking, just a dick. Just your, your, your good old-fashioned cloaca. <laughs> right. I can't believe you said that word. Gross. <laughs> now this kind of goes against who Paul Freshour was because he had a master's degree and by all accounts was like a nice guy. He wasn't like the kind of guy to to bully people and, you know, just be a jerk to everybody. And, uh, you know, 
when you look at people who have written letters, like anonymous weird letters, like look <laughs> right. at Ted Kaczynski. Like there, there was a, there was a letter writer, if ever there was one. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was very smart, and his letters tended to reflect how smart he was, or at least he thought he was. Like he was very. I mean, I don't know. I think you, how intelligent and educated you are. That's that's a hard thing to fake. Like if you're super smart, it's hard to fake being dumb. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, the thing that bothers me most about the Circleville letters is the horrible fucking grammar. It's just awful. <laughs> Every single word is like separated by a colon. Like it's a oh, fucking telegraph annoying. or something, except that it's handwritten. So weird. Yeah. Very weird. Super Very weird. weird. Very poor grammar. And I just don't think that him being like a smart person, he would have been able to disguise that to be right, someone who right. is obviously maybe like less educated. Yeah. However, the document expert, the document expert felt that samples of Paul's handwriting matched certain aspects of the letters there's about 98 letters that are still like around to like examine yeah yeah and she she studied about 49 of those letters and she basically said that she would swear in court that paul freshour was the letter writer (laughs) (laughs) and it turns out that Some of the letters that had been received while Paul was in prison had Paul's fingerprints on them. So again, either Paul handled them in some way or there was somebody behind it who was able to get Paul's fingerprints on the paper that these letters were written on. It's just very weird. It would have been really, really hard for Paul to have pulled off writing all these letters while he was in prison. Paul himself received a letter while he was in prison from the Circleville letter writer. And it was basically like, ha ha, you're in jail. Gotcha. Like nobody wants you out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, you'd think that it's just so weird. Yeah. Seriously is. You'd think they would have it, been, Oh, well you, I mean, you obviously aren't this guy because you know, yeah, but yet somehow his fingerprints are on some of the ones. But yet he was incarcerated in solitary confinement when these letters were received. So how the fuck did his fingerprints get on there? It was his gun, but yet he claimed the gun had been stolen. So who got a hold of his gun and set up the the booby trap? Right. And what's <laughs> even weirder is that that FBI profiler doesn't think the person who wrote the letters is the person who did the booby trap. Really? Yeah, because uh, just the, the type of person, this like letter writer that just wants to, you know, send all these letters out and, and be all secretive and crazy wouldn't do something like that where they set up a whole like, uh, you know, the, the, it just psychologically the speaking, that's not what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. So that's even weirder. And remember the guy that um, that Mary had first thought was the um, the guy who uh, you know started the letters. Yeah. Long Mary. Yeah, yeah. 
David Longberry. Well, he's not around to defend himself uh, or, you know, either either admit guilt or defend himself because apparently in 1999 he raped an 11-year-old girl and Jesus. he <laughs> was on the run from the law and then took his own life. Well, so fuck. Good. There you go. That's <laughs> fucked up. That is fucked up. But it's weird that... Um, I don't know. I mean, I almost want to say, and this is just me not making any accusations. I'm just speculating stuff. Like, what about, like, the sheriff of the town? The one who was so, like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, there just wasn't a whole lot in, in explored about other possible people. I mean, there was, like, about, like, you know, Paul's wife, Karen, maybe his son, Maybe Gordon Massey's son, but yeah. Really a whole slew um, of people. <laughs> David Longberry was wasn't mentioned in either of the shows. I had to I had to find that like scouring the internet before his name even came up. And then yeah, I mean Sheriff Radcliffe seems to to play kind of a central role in this whole thing, but yeah, nobody says anything about that. I, I, well he's the he's the sheriff. I mean <laughs> He wouldn't do anything wrong. I mean, it's just interesting because the profiler said it's, it's somebody who's kind of a bully. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the sheriff? <laughs> uh, what kind of people like tend to be kind of like bullies and stuff? Like, Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. That's a thinker. That's a thinker. Well, that's about all I have. I mean, uh Unfortunately, uh, Paul Freshour died in 2012, so. and he denied being the letter writer to his dying day. And I am inclined to think that he actually wasn't. I think he was kind of innocent in all of it, even though it was like technically his gun that was was rigged to uh, to to kill to Mary Gillespie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I it just. Um, when the Unsolved Mysteries interviewed him, he just did not seem, I don't know. I mean, I know you, people can, can lie and all that, but right, just but, not only him, but like all the people that knew him really well were just like, there's just like no fucking like, way. This is not, this is not this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm inclined to think it was not him, despite what the document expert thinks and, right. you know. But I mean, I guess you could maybe like, hey, go through these papers for me or something. And then you got a bunch of. Well, I mean, I don't and know. I don't know. I mean, the document expert was very confident in her analysis. But I mean, we all know that there's a lot of forensic science out there that people have been very confident that now we're seeing bullshit. more and more. Yeah. yeah, that. Yeah. So, I mean, I am inclined to think that, you know, it could. Uh, handwriting analysis could easily be one of those things. Like bite mark analysis is really starting to come under question, and like you know, arson investigation in certain cases. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. A lot of so, things that they were. There's a lot of things that people claim to be experts on and testify in court on criminal cases that they are 100% sure yeah. that this person did or didn't do that because they are convinced that they have this knowledge when in fact, no. No, not so no. much. So I am not convinced that it was Paul Freshour. Who the fuck else 
could it have been that knew all this information about everybody in town? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess I mean, like, who the fuck was this person that they just sit there writing like thousands of letters to every person in town, like fucking, outing all their fucking secrets and just like just knew all kind of dirt. Knew all kinds of dirt. Wanted everybody else in town to know everybody's dirt. Was yeah, just, just like, hey, on a man. vendetta to like you know fucking crazy there are no fucking secrets in circle bill okay right (laughs) like why why (laughs) yeah just why just why i mean i guess i guess you just have to sometimes you know just you know just content to write all your letters and just fuck people's lives up i mean not only was all the emotional damage that it caused to people, but uh, the fact that an innocent man was probably incarcerated for 10 years, yeah. his life and reputation ruined. Uh, there's Ron Gillespie, uh, you know, like killed in a car accident, triggered by this person's words. Yeah. Seriously. Seriously. So wh- whoever the fuck this person is, they're, they're, they're pretty sick. Yeah. They are very sick, and they have, Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of information they have is is wild. (laughs) It is. It is. Well, I, you know, we're running uh, kind of, kind of long here, so I think I'll just save my, uh, this article about Excalibur for next time. All right. And speaking of next time, I, I've got, I've got some more, um, Maniacal letter writers. Ah, coming up. So. See, Joanna's got a theme too, you guys. <laughs> I do have a theme. I do have a theme. It does not just end with Circleville, Ohio. <laughs> oh no. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> but wait, there's more. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys very much for listening. As uh, as you know, you can find us at any of the social media sites that we're at, as Stranger Than or Stranger Than Stranger Than Podcast. Uh, we're again we're not we're not great at social media so you know don't expect all kinds of fanciness right and uh you know uh, we would love for you to send us your stories your stories about aliens or bigfoot or shadow people or black-eyed kids or whatever you know some strange encounters you've had go ahead and just email them to us stranger than podcast at gmail.com we'd love to share them on the show uh, you can also check out the podcast syndicate. We are a part of ageofradio.org is the place that you can see them at. Our little corner of that website is ageofradio.org slash stranger than where you can stream our shows. You can also become a member of our Patreon, patreon.com slash stranger than podcast, where for $1, if you ever see us, we'll give you a crisp high five. For $2, you get ad-free regular episodes. And for $5, Joanna horrifies you with terrible tales about terrible people in our bonus true crime episode that comes out once a month. And with that, we'll talk to you next time. And stay strange. (laughs) 